Welcome to Fucking Cancelled, a podcast about what the left is like, what to do about it, and what it'll be like once we've done it. In today's episode, we sit down with David Rovix, a musician, writer, and libertarian socialist from the United States. We discuss the role of music on the left, the importance of internationalism, and what it feels like to go through a cancellation spectacle. We finish off with David playing some songs for us. Welcome back to Fucking Cancelled. Welcome back to Fucking Cancelled. We're here today with David Rovix, who is an internationally known and acclaimed uh, singer-songwriter, a troubadour of the left, as he's been known, um, and um, a really cool guy. So we're really happy to uh, have David on the podcast. Great to be with you. um yeah so david you want to let people know uh just let people know about you what you're up to what you do kind of who are you i am a singer songwriter and since especially since the pandemic a a podcaster live streamer and stay at home something or other and um i uh i write a lot of songs about social movements and i'm a big fan of history and write a lot of songs about history and under normal circumstances, do a lot of traveling and performing and participating in different social movements in the in the uh, sort of uh, position as a musician. Showing up at strategic moments in different places, like when there's a big protest happening, you know. <laughs> totally. Yeah, we were listening to some of your music um, yesterday. We put on a bunch of songs and they were really beautiful and moving. Um, so why do you think um, political music is important? Why do you think leftists need music? Ah, uh, yeah. Well, I think uh, I think Emma's Revolution, a couple, uh, Sandy and Pat, uh, have a, it's a duo called Emma's Revolution, and they have a song uh, called about singing for the choir, uh, uh, having been accused, like me, of, of uh, singing for the choir. And um you know the choir needs music and and people need to be people who are involved with social movements uh, well they they are under attack uh, in so many ways from so many directions and uh they need uh, support and solidarity and and uh music fosters a sense of community and people get together and and uh, often often uh, you know my shows but not that's not nothing unique necessarily about my shows but at a they often bring together a wide spectrum of the left in a way that the wide spectrum of the left wouldn't necessarily come together under other circumstances, mm-hmm. but at a concert, they'll come together. And uh, people often identify musicians with different politics that they identify themselves with. And that's often easy to do with a musician because musicians are often kind of vague about their politics, you know, because we're often not using, you know, words like anarcho-communist in a song, you know, or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's not like if people can just uh, guess whatever they want to and it might work just fine, you know. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, that that's... But I think that the role of cheerleader is important in a social movement and in human societies generally, you know. Totally. Totally. Um, speaking of, of, you know, the politics of singer-songwriters, uh, how would you describe your politics? Like, how do you, how do you position yourself? What's important to you politically? 
I like the words uh, in combination libertarian socialist. I think they they have a nice uh, they 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 work well together because they sound contradictory to people who don't look into what these words mean in combination. You know, so I I tend to like that descriptor. Uh, uh, you know, when when pressed <laughs> to describe my politics. You know, I mean, I really like uh, just getting into the you know, talking about tactics and strategies and history and, 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 uh, and, and not using, um, uh, whenever possible, not using labels uh, to, to describe uh, political perspectives because they're so often, they require definition and they're not, they're not, they don't have, they're not understood uh, in the same way by the, by more than two people. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, so that's why I, I tend to shy away from the ter terms like, well, socialist or anarchist, I think, are both uh, less useful to me than social uh, than libertarian socialist because two words uh, gets a little closer than one to to, to at least uh, sort of there, at least there's a nice little contradiction between the two words, so they kind of sit well together in that way. <laughs> right, mm -hmm. I like that. Um, you're also a lifelong anti-fascist, um, and you talk a lot about that. So, can you tell us a bit about anti-fascism and why it's important to you? Yeah, it's and it just keeps on getting more important somehow or other, um, particularly on on this side of the border here in North America. It's been a it's been a particular issue for a while now, um, and uh, the I mean the you know basically I guess there's so many different ways to uh, approach that question because I am uh, half Jewish and so my family was largely wiped out. Uh, in the Holocaust, uh, although my family all emigrated in the 19th century, so uh, I did, I didn't have any, um, you know, and nobody I, I sort of knew or, or anything like, like that. It's sort of more directly in terms of people killed by fascism. But um, my grandma was in touch with dozens of relatives in Minsk um, at the time that uh, of the invade of of the fascist uh, the nazi uh, invasion of of uh, minsk and she lost touch with all of them so i mean you know so but but and i guess other than just how horrendous fascism has been as a as a uh, practice in in europe and and how deadly it's been for so many tens of millions of people it's really relevant uh today uh, to be an anti-fascist. It was relevant back then. It was relevant before Hitler rose to power. And it's been relevant ever since because uh, fascism keeps on uh, becoming a popular ideology that often runs whole countries for you know decades. And that's been the situation since uh, the Second World War. And of course, the United States has been a major supporter of, of fascist uh, regimes and fascist movements around the world, uh, including, uh, you know, including um, Islamic uh, m movements that share a lot in common with, with fascism. You know, that's been, a, I mean, the United States backed Al-Qaeda, you know, the United, the United States has a long history of, of backing um, really unsavory actors in political uh, that um, in the political scene that would seem to be completely at odds with you know that are completely at odds with all the ideology all the all the rhetoric that comes mm -hmm. out of the you know the pol politicians and i mean and it's all it's all very strategic and and uh, and of course you know divide and con fascism is all about 
Well, it's all about mimicking socialism to, to, in order to be popular, in order to get people on board with your with with what what appears to be your socialist politics, in order to then use the population for your imperial ends. You know, I mean, that's historically been the case anyway, in terms of like Germany and Italy. But, but um, I mean, it, it takes various forms and various times in history. But I think in terms of the populist right-wing leaders like Trump and Modi and Bolsonaro, uh, wh what we're seeing is very much the same kind of fascist uh, playbook, uh, you know, very much like uh, Hitler's uh, fascist playbook. And, and so it's important for people to understand that at least historically, you know, fascism, they didn't call themselves fascists. They called themselves national socialists. It's the National Socialist Party. You know, the Nazis were the National Socialist Party. And, you know, their enemies called them Nazis and, and called them fascists. And and they, not that they rejected these uh, terms necessarily, but they referred to themselves as the National Socialist Party. And and they were very, they emphasized that word socialist as much as they emphasized the word national, you know, uh, and that was very strategic. And, and that was also implemented in policy, you know, and there's all kinds of ways that uh, you could see all sorts of socialist policies being implemented by the National Socialist government in, in Germany in terms of uh, in terms of looking after the welfare of the working class, in terms of uh, things like, you know, fostering outdoor activities for young people, Hitler Youth, you know, this whole system of camps, uh, uh, a lot more emphasis than they had at the time in England or France in terms of getting good nutritional food into the bodies of the working class. And there, there was a, the German army, they got rid of the officers, you know, the, the officers hung out with the with the soldiers, they ate together, you know, unlike the very, um, very hierarchical uh, militaries in, in the, the other, you know, Western countries. So, I mean, there's a, it's, people can just paper over it uh, now, um, now that we're, you know, 80 years from the, that time and, you know, hardly anybody's alive that, that, you know, certainly remembers it firsthand or anything, but, you know, National Socialism was, uh, was a, a, a very threatening phenomenon at the time because of its socialist qualities, you know. That, right, or at least it's like populist qualities, right? Like, yeah. I don't know, I would I would probably push back a little bit on the idea that uh, many of those policies were like socialist in character, at least like proper, you know, properly speaking. But I think that populist, like right-wing populism is definitely like a characteristic that that applied to to the um, the Hitler regime, certainly. Um, they sold themselves as national socialists. I mean, that's how they sold themselves. Right. Right. You know, that, I mean, that's that's uh, you know that's how they described themselves, and that's how they wanted to be perceived. Totally. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. It's 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 super interesting thinking about the uh, like the rise of neo-Nazism and the alt-right and like fascist and sort of like fascist adjacent movements in the states um, as uh, uh, juxtaposed with the kind of like ruling elite in the United States, which I think has a lot of like, basically like right-wing authoritarian tendencies, but in my estimation anyways, is not particularly interested at all in a sort of like Nazi takeover um, because a, you know, like a white nationalist revolution in the United States would be extraordinarily bad for business. Um, and I don't think that the ruling elites in the U.S. are interested in something like that. But I do think that they're very interested in um, right-wing authoritarianism. 
um, writ large, you know, because that that allows them to maintain a lot of power and to maintain the the corporate structure that gives them their power. Um, do you think that the um, the alt right and these sort of like these proto fascist movements that are popping up actually pose uh, a threat in and of themselves, or do you think that it's more that they are kind of like echoing a popular sentiment that could be used by much more powerful actors to gain power? I realize that was an I extremely mean, loaded question. No, that's a that's a that's a fine question. I mean, this is where <laughs> this is where my brain is at so much of the time in the past, you know, so many many years. So I mean, you know. The questions don't need to be related to music, uh, but uh, they, I think, um, I mean, my, ob I know that there, it's, it's a very important for a lot of people and, and, and it's not like, has no legitimacy, has a lot of legitimacy to talk about the rise of the alt-right and the, 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 the right-wing, the far-right and how threatening it is and all this. It's all real. That's all happening. Uh, but I think to a massive degree, it is just a product of the circumstances we find ourselves in and a product of the media and the politicians uh, that that are featured on the media, on the right wing media. I mean, it is a it is a product of generations now of of a two party system where not, neither party has served the interests of the working class. And we're now, we're now going on my entire life almost uh, since the, Dem I mean, I was a small child in the early seventies when <clears throat> the democratic party uh, basically turned its back on the working class. I mean, that was uh, in favor of uh, transnational capitalism and, and uh, supporting free trade and exporting uh, U.S. industry um, to countries where without environmental standards and with, you know, terrible pay for the workers, et cetera. That process began in earnest in the 70s, and it's been uh, a process that has been, you know, ruled over by both parties, um, and both parties have been parties of big business, you know. Um, and, and, but they've been positioning themselves differently and in more recent, in, in recent decades, that's become really, really stark in terms of how the, uh, well, just in the past 10 years, really, in terms of how the Republican party positions itself in, in, in such a openly far right kind of, you know, almost, almost openly sort of, well, and not, not almost, but under Trump openly xenophobic and racist, um, you know party you know and, and trump didn't didn't lose the support of his party while he was in office he, he he consolidated it so i mean but i think uh the threat comes from above more than anywhere and um it's not i i don't i you know i mean at at some point i guess any kind of like far right movement will take on uh, characteristics of a grassroots movement, and will might have the feel of a grassroots movement to to one extent, to one, to one degree or another. But to me, uh, not only the far right, but other social movements uh, on the streets in my lifetime have felt like largely creations of politicians and the media. You know, other movements have the much more of a grassroots uh, origin and fe feeling to them, and and you know, whereas I, to me, it, so many, when I see these rallies, they feel like staged. I feel like I'm watching television. Right. Yeah. Um, you're, you're clearly a, a really thoughtful, well-read um, guy who has a lot of interest in, you know, global politics and what's going on around you. 
um, we wanted to ask you about internationalism because a lot of your songs are very internationalist or, or global in character. You know, they talk about issues that are happening all over the world, not just in the United States, uh, which is the, you know, what Americans usually do. Um, and yeah, we wanted to ask you like why, why it's important for leftists to have an international um, or internationalist perspective. Um, in your opinion. I think it's, it's so important because ultimately if the working class can't be divided within a nation successfully by the ruling class, and certainly in, in this country, that's been the history, then there's always the uh, backup option of pitting your working class against another country's working class. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's the basic problem with national borders is, is that you know, nationalism is then uh, fostered by uh, people with bad intentions uh, not as a celebration of cultural characteristics of a particular place, and, but uh, as a, as a aggressive uh, imperial sort of uh, thing, and um, and it, that's been the history. I mean, if if not for this First World War, who knows what might have happened with the radical labor movement of the period. I mean, all over the world, uh, the, the militant labor unions, like in Canada, the one big union, and in the US, the industrial workers of the world, and in many other countries, there were other unions, that anarcho-syndicalist unions that were massively powerful, really ascendant at the time in the 19-teens. Uh, campaigns of repression against these unions in Canada and the United States and England and Germany were, were massive. Uh, and But it was really the First World War that was able to um, put an end to that movement or at least put a pause to the movement. Right. You know, and I mean, these it's always these wars that are, you know, that, that, are, that are the worst problem for the work, international working class and, and in terms of uh, solidarity between workers of different countries. And, and, and I mean, the damage done by millions of people shooting at each other and killing each other for years, the damage done to international solidarity and to uh, the notion of the working class as a class. And to, I mean, it's just in, you know, incalculable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we wanted to ask you about solidarity as a concept, um, like what we call a nexus, or you could also call it like social justice cu culture, this like, um, this scene that we find ourselves in seems to be like quite hostile um, often to the idea of solidarity um, and the idea that we can and should like empathize with other people's struggles, um, that we don't have to necessarily share, you know, specific identities in order to be in solidarity with each other. Um, so talk to us about solidarity and why you think solidarity is important for the left. Yeah, man, it's just not only do we, not <laughs> only do we need to be in solidarity with each other and not only um, is, is empathy so important, but, uh, but we can actually understand each other. That's another thing is that you, mm -hmm. you, not, not only is identity not necessary, you know, to, to be in solidarity with other people. Uh, but your identity also uh, doesn't uh, impair your ability to empathize with other people, no, no matter what anybody tells you. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> You're already here first, folks. <laughs> I'm, I can guarantee you that I'm right here. And actually, I can, I, I, and actually I can objectively prove, actually, that, um, that I'm right. 
that that your identity is not an impediment to your ability to empathize with other people. This is something that I objectively prove at every concert I do. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and, and the objective proof is, I mean, I, and here I'm, I'm tooting my own horn, but I could toot a lot of other people's horns just as easily. But, it, you know, what, if, you're, if you're singing for an audience of refugees about the experience of being a refugee and the audience of refugees who speaks English, who understands your music, is crying by the end of the song, then your song succeeded in empathizing with them. Mm-hmm. You know, and the the dem, the the demonstrable evidence of this is their tears. Mm-hmm. You know, so I mean that that might not be you know exactly a scientific uh, process of of proving you know these things, but you know these the uh, uh, identitarianism is is um is a uh, yeah, we we have different identities, and these things are important to understand, and the different dynamics of what it means to have different identities in a given society. That's all very important, and shouldn't be uh, swept under the rug. However, as a sort of uh, guiding philosophy for a left wing movement or for any movement, it's just a disaster mm-hmm. because uh, it's because it's just all about separation and all about uh, individual definitions and all about like you can't understand that person because you're not from that background which is just arbitrary uh reasoning that came out of some i mean so much of this stuff is arbitrary reasoning that came out of some university and i think yeah. i think universities play a really negative role in society overall because <laughs> um you know because all the, especially phd programs because um, all of these people getting their phd's are are they're all expected to write a book Basically, that's what a PhD thesis mm-hmm. is, right? Yeah, Not, and it has I, to be I like it has to be right? like a new idea that they come up with. Exactly, it has to be a new idea, and that is going to involve some new word, some new self-definition, some new identity that nobody thought of before that they can then become experts on. I mean, it it's just made for for sort of getting everything into more atomized little pieces because then somebody can become a specialist on some new little atomized piece that mm-hmm. you know of the puzzle it i mean not to blame everything on the universities or, or or on any particular one phenomena but i think um this has been a tendency for a long time and it feels to me like it really comes out of the universities and and then it also also so much of the rhetoric around privilege it feels like it's coming out of the universities mm-hmm. because i mean i hear so many actually privileged white people talking about privilege and like they're talking about it as a comparative relative concept but they are really are privileged and and then they're talking about other people as if they're all as privileged as they are you know and it, it's it, this is the assumption that seems to be made and, and and is is communicated and is very alienating to so much of the working class and has been uh, probably a significant contributor to trump's popularity Totally. And yeah, I just wanted to pull something out of what you're saying that I think is so important. Like, I think artists, whether that's musicians or like writers or other kinds of artists, like an artist's job is to connect to people's humanity and to connect people's humanity to each other. You know, like that's what artists do. They pull out like the human experience and they like allow 
us to connect to each other's humanity. It's like really what an artist's job is, you know? And um, that happens, like our ability to connect with other people's human experiences can obviously take place across different identities and across different specific experiences because we are all human and we all share, you know, certain human experiences and qualities and desires and, and our capacity to love and our capacity to fear. And so like, you know, so much of what, you know, oppressive systems do is they like dehumanize and other and they, they objectify and they make it so that we don't connect with the human experience of people who are different from us, right? And, you know, artists, when they're doing their job correctly, are actually crossing that bridge and helping people to connect, reconnect with that humanity. And it's like really important. I think you do a really beautiful um, job of it in your songs. But like one of the crazy things that's happening in the Nexus is they're now making it problematic to do that. Like um, there's been cases with um, fiction writers. I'm not a fiction writer, but fiction writers who are like imaginatively constructing a world um, and writing about people who, they, who don't share an identity with them are getting like called out on Twitter because it's seen as like appropriative or wrong for a writer to imagine and like create um, a world from the perspective of someone who has a different identity than them. And I'm like, that's literally a writer's job. Yeah. It's literally their job. Like their whole job is to put themselves in the shoes of someone who is different from them if they're a fiction writer and to like, to like flesh that out and to allow other people to enter into those shoes, you know? So it's just, it's very upsetting because I think, you know, that art and music, they play a very important role in connecting us to our humanity and to other people's humanities. And that's obviously an important project for the left as well. So for sure. And yeah. obviously, yeah, like there's, there's a good way and a bad way to, to, to write fiction, you know, but that's, that's, you know, that's for fucking readers to decide, you know, yeah, like if a person does a bad job of exactly. doing that, then you can exactly. say that they're not doing a good job as a writer, you know, but if, like you said, like if the response is that people are really strongly emotionally connecting with it and people who do share that experience are really strongly emotionally connecting with it, then obviously the writer did do a good job and that's a good thing, you know? Yeah, totally. Um, um, yeah. Yeah, that is I absolutely. I completely. I mean, that's. I, I would only. I, I would only just repeat what you just said in agreement. You know, but yeah, it's it's just it's about whether the 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 writer is doing a good job or not. And and then of course, if the writer isn't doing a good job, that does not mean that they are uh, deplorable human beings or suddenly, uh, you know, because they're trying to imagine what it's like to be somebody other than them uh, and that person may be of a different gender or race or whatever, that they've suddenly become sexists or racist for failing to successfully imagine what it's like to be somebody else. But it may mean that they wrote some shit fiction and it's yeah. not a good book and nobody should bother reading it that's you know that's entirely possible well people do that all the time yeah. <laughs> you don't need to condemn them for it just don't read the book totally yeah. it's like they have some work to do as a writer like, yeah, exactly. right or they need to yeah. like do they need to bother to do their research yeah or whatever exactly. it is, you know exactly um, and that and badly researched stuff is all over the place and it's not and you don't need to condemn people for it you know if, yeah yeah absolutely i don't know it's it is funny because when people say you know, point blank that you cannot understand the experiences of someone whose identity you don't share. I'm like, first of all, citation needed. S second of all, like, what are you like right. a fucking lizard? Like, of course you can. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What? what are you talking right. about? Like, you can absolutely like understand many important things about experiences of people who are not you, you know, totally. like we, we yeah. share common human experiences yeah. and like, you know, anthropology uh, which is my my academic background, you know, for all of its many faults, has long held that there is something called the psychic unity of mankind, which is that all human beings share a mental architecture and therefore that we can understand each other's experiences to a greater or lesser degree, you know? Um, and that is like part of, literally part of what it means to be part of our human species, you know? Yeah. Yes. Um, and that's always been like very important to me. And 
I don't know, yesterday when we were doing our um, little deep dive into David Rovix, you know, we were like listening to a bunch of your songs and like listening to some interviews you did with people and stuff. And, um, you know, I was like, I, I want to show, I wanted to show Clementine your song, Janine, because I remember that song um, from when I was like literally like a kid. Um, and, and it was really, it really affected me then. And we were listening to it and I was just like crying the whole time. We were both you know? crying. We were both crying listening to Janine because it's like an incredibly powerful song that, and you know, Clementine was pointing out that it successfully rehumanizes people who are profoundly and completely dehumanized, you know? And that is an important fucking thing to do. And to point out that people who end up in these um, really horrific situations, like in the song Janine, it's, it's the, the sort of like main character is um, um, someone who becomes a suicide bomber. Um, people who end up in situations like that are human beings who didn't just like spring into the world uh, yes. a mass murderer you know like things happen to them and and they have relationships and their relationships to like for example like their mother or their cousin mm-hmm. um, are are relationships that we living our comfortable lives in the west can can empathize with and we can think about what it would feel to see like our mother like you know lying in a pile of rubble like with her fucking legs blown off or something and how that would make us feel you know yeah. Exactly, um, and yeah like it's just such an important thing to be able to do and art is like very crucial for that and you shouldn't have to be a palestinian suicide bomber to write a song about that yeah of course yeah absolutely absolutely yeah and and the idea that we can't you know that that we somehow have to be of a particular identity in order to empathize with that identity i mean it's such a it's it's first of all it's wrong but it's also just such a destructive idea because it and it's then well you know it, it's it, i guess with so many of these these ideas it it always depends on whether they're taken to their extreme or not like you know because on the one hand it it's really important to hear from people from particular backgrounds uh t- talking about uh, their own particular experience that's that's Absolutely. really vitally important but at the, but then this kind of like idea gets uh, turned into some kind of uh you know a, a, after enough discussions on twitter and with enough phd theses and whatever it yeah. it, it, it gets turned into this kind of like, like uh, absolutist you know yeah yeah. Exactly. yeah yeah totally totally um yeah, and I mean, I think, okay, so here's another thing that the Nexus does, which is very, very similar in the sense that it takes like a sort of common sense idea and then turns it into an axiom that can never, ever yeah. be questioned, you know, um, which is this idea in the Nexus that um, any affiliation or interaction with someone um, becomes a total endorsement of everything that they've ever said or done, you know, so you've written yeah. a response in, in your response to one of your like call outs or whatever you wrote, um, I am not them, I am me. <laughs> when when people were you know trying to say that because you have like interacted with people whose views they disagree with that you therefore hold also those same views you know and you're just trying to be like i i'm literally my own person like i'm not that other person um why is it so important to be able to talk to people that we might disagree with and i mean as a follow-up or side question like why do you think the nexus is so obsessed with uh painting everyone with the same brush if they interact literally at all yeah you know i mean it's it's a it's a it's particularly interesting this whole thing because uh you won't get attacked so much if you if you're a a left-wing artist and you get an interview on a corporate news channel or or uh you know which of course isn't likely to happen but if it does happen you don't get shit for that from these people you get shit for talking to some other uh person who is basically an independent um actor of some kind whether with a youtube channel or or 
you know, some some other relatively marginal journalist or or uh, po political, <clears throat> you know, activist or whatever. And and then and then you get told that because you appeared on that person's YouTube channel, I'm thinking of. Uh, there's been lots of accusations around. Um, what's his name? I don't know. Yeah, and I don't even want to promote the guy. So I mean, I'm I don't even care to mention the guy's name, but because I don't I don't like uh, his YouTube channel. I don't like his show. Uh, I don't like his political perspective. I don't want to promote the guy, and I didn't share uh, that particular. I'm just thinking of one random interview here, just as a as a you know, but. Uh, but the but of course I'm happy to be on the guy's show because I want to I want to access his audience I want to really? and I want to have a conversation with somebody who who thinks uh, differently than me and if they want to have me on their channel I did not reciprocate in this particular guy's case who, who I don't need to mention his name I did not reciprocate and have him on my show I don't want to promote his views to my uh, to my uh, people actually you know I, I you know they're, uh, some of them are abhorrent actually but that doesn't stop me from wanting to be on his show if he wants to you know and and it doesn't stop me from being civil to him either I'm not going to totally. uh, come on to his show and denounce him and yell at him either I'll answer his questions as honestly as I can Mm -hmm. Right. I think a lot of people on the Nexus um, assume that if you would ever go on the, you know, on the show, for example, of like someone whose views you disagree with, um, that the the only way that you could do that would be if you were to basically go on and start having like a meltdown and just like scream yeah. at him or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, and, exactly. and start just like accusing him of all kinds of stuff. Um, that's what's that's the only way you can get away with it and not get attacked, basically. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, it is, it is, it is really interesting what you're saying, because yeah, like, um, actually, because of the algorithms and because of the political bubbles that have become more and more sort of like rigid, um, that we all live in, um, there are many people who are on the right or even sort of like weirdly, like, um, I don't want to say apolitical, but sort of like these, these kind of like fringe movements that are sort of outside the left, right spectrum. They're kind of eclectic politically and they're like uh, conspiracy theory types or like, um, you know, people associated with like religious groups or like whatever, um, you know, they might never really have access to a voice that is just like a sort of like common sense, like plain spoken and civil leftist. Yeah. You know, like the only interactions that they might have with the left are filtered through their like wacky, like either far right or right wing or like religious um, or conspiracy conspiratorial uh, worldview, you know, and, and it's handed to them by their by their public figures that they, you know, these YouTube figures or these journalists or whatever it is. And, and they never have access to someone just being like, yeah, like, I think that, you know, this is what like socialism means. Like this is, uh, we, ha we actually agree that like the, the elite um, is sort of at the root of all of this. And I have some uh, common sense solutions for how we could deal with this problem. Um, and I also have, you know, uh, an analysis of the situation that sounds a little bit less insane than like whatever, <laughs> right. whatever fucking, uh, thing you have going yep. on you know what I mean like I don't think it's like yep. lizard people or like whatever you know <laughs> yeah. they're running the world yep. it's literally just rich people that's the conspiracy you know and like if you can explain that in like a in a reasonable way to most people I think that most people are like well yeah there's there's definitely some truth to what you're saying you know and th that's one one foot in the door that's one person who's like absolutely um one more person who's like halfway there to sort of being like well I, I sympathize with some socialist positions you know totally. so. yeah and we're trying to grow exactly. the left like I thought we were trying to grow right? the left right um, yeah, the, the sort of like, uh, the snowball effect of cancellation is like really interesting because it's like, you know, if when, 
when you associate with someone who is is seen as problematic for some reason, like whether that be for a real reason or a fake reason or whatever, you also become problematic by like association for having just interacted with them in any way or like not unfollowing them on the internet or just like even just not denouncing them, you know, not wanting to yep. join the pylon. Um, and it's really funny for me and Jay because we associate with so many canceled people that like yep. our our cancellation snowball is like quite large. Well, it's like wow, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I can't wait until they start accusing us of like uh, collaborating with like space aliens or something yeah, like really good, you know, because it's getting it's getting to that level. Yeah. But, but what happens? Yet? What happens if you try to have several of the canceled folks all together on the same discussion? I mean, I've tried, I've kind of like toyed with trying to have a bunch of my canceled friends all on the same discussion, and I find that. That the the idea of them all associating with each other is not necessarily comfortable for them because they don't necessarily want to be associated with each other. They've got <laughs> enough problems to deal with Literally. with you know, the accusations they're they're dealing with. You well, know? it's okay. They can all just come on our show. Yeah. That way. Right. Like, our our response to all of this has been to just lean in, you know, because it's like like we are going to be harassed and criticized and like lied about and and have the most insane things said about us regardless at this point you know so it's like if that's already going to be happening then we might as well not live in fear and we might as well actually communicate with people and like listen to what people have to say and like do all of the work that you know there's a lot of leftists they want to be having conversations and and they want to be doing this kind of thing but they're just afraid of being canceled and so in a certain way when you're canceled there's a freedom that that comes with that like some of the things that people have accused us of are like like orders of magnitude more insane than anything that we could actually do in real life yeah it's so it's like, why why worry about what we're doing in real life then you know what i mean like <laughs> totally. we, we have our own like principles and we're not going to break them but like yeah <laughs> yeah so yeah um no so jay was saying that um they actually first heard your music and listened to, to your music when they were a teenager so um you've been around for a while um and you've been involved with the activist left for decades so as someone who's been around and who has seen you know leftist stuff playing out over the course of decades um, do you have any insights um, about the trajectory that you see the left on um, and how that's been developing over time and what has changed? I mean, I, w- I would say, that, I mean, for one thing, I, I spend a, I've spent the past 25 years or so traveling and playing music and and uh, and traveling in different countries. And so one thing that I would say is is um, it's it's all played out very differently in different countries and, and national borders make a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Are probably they make the biggest difference in terms of what kind of culture exists in a country and, and the left culture. I mean, a lot of uh, there's a lot of talk about world historic movements like the 60s, like uh, the Arab uprisings, like so many others. I mean, and those are, those those moments in world history are extremely important in understanding history and understanding how societies work and social movements and how they develop and all that. <clears throat> Very important and fascinating, um, but uh, but also not the whole picture. And and. Uh, different movements develop differently in different countries for a whole different set of all sorts of different circumstances. And, and it's, you know, way beyond anything that I have a firm grasp on. But what I can say from my own experience is the most important thing that left-wing movements can do is ultimately is uh is last and 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 set up uh set up institutions that aren't dependent on individuals and that are going to be self-sustaining 
and that's the hardest thing to do and most movements in most countries don't succeed in doing that but and and of course you're facing massive repression in the course of trying to do that anyway but in the places where that kind of thing works and and where those institutions <coughs> kind of those left-wing institutions social movement or otherwise institutions kind of have the ability to 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 reproduce themselves every year or every generation or however it's set up to work you know that's uh, that's an amazing phenomenon that then can lead to a whole society um having a different kind of perspective and and um where i've seen that kind of where, where the kind of the place that that for me is is closest to a, a place that's managed to do that is is the the Danish uh, social movements, the Danish left, and and then it, it varies. It's not, and then there's other countries where it's sort of on a similar par, um, and then you know many many others where it's uh, more like uh, what happens here in the U.S., where I think um, uh, there there will be social movements that that can spread and become very uh, popular, but uh, and 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 can have a really huge impact, um, but then they tend to fall apart um, because they don't have the sort of institutional framework to sustain themselves. Uh, right. And and this this that kind of pattern goes on elsewhere, but but it's it happens faster here because it's um, because there's so much less of a framework to to sustain these kinds of movements in terms of like well in all kinds of ways we just don't we don't have the left wing political parties we don't have uh, the, the union movement in in the kind of sizes as other countries we don't have the physical infrastructure we don't have the you know all the kind of buildings and stuff that are, that go along with it when you have a society that has a lot of unions and stuff like that 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 are sort of part part of a social movement that people can kind of plug into i mean it's so much of europe there's always there's always buildings to use for free to do anything and you might get probably a budget too thrown at you from some union you know whereas you know in the united states in particular you know you can't if you want to have an event of any kind your first problem is paying for the venue to have it in you know yeah. so you're just starting out at a loss from the beginning you know you're right. not it's not like you know so i mean that's that's yeah and then i guess the biggest thing i would say as well is the biggest enemy of uh any social movement other than the actual enemy of the social movement that's trying to because if it's a if it's a social movement that's worth its salt then then the state probably opposes it and and the corporate elite probably oppose it so you've already got a lot of a lot of enemies arrayed against mm -hmm. you as as any kind of a so, effective social movement but on top of that what what tends to really uh kill social movements over and over again that i've seen is uh backstabbing you know is is this uh, what we today often you know talk about as cancel culture or call out culture which had different names at different periods in history but it's i've heard many people who were veterans of the 60s uh, social movements who talk about the how how difficult all the backstabbing was how yeah. much worse that was than the police brutality yeah you know and I, I think it's that's a complex uh you know issue but it goes it goes way back you know it's not it's not a recent phenomenon for sure it's definitely a shadow that's been uh sort of haunting the left um for its whole history yeah um, 
the whole history that could be emphasized because Marx was a backstabber too, you know, for all his, uh, for all his uh, good contributions, you know, uh, the, the personal attacks uh, was very much part of the, uh, you know, left scene, you know, in the letters back and forth across the Atlantic between, you know, people like Marx and, and, you know, people like, uh, oh, you know, the best-selling author of the time in the United States, uh, contemporary of Marx, so what his name is, uh, Henry George. You know, they, they, they denounced each other for, you know, you know, Marx called him adolescent. You know, it was, that was his favorite insult, you know. Right. Anybody who doesn't have a sophisticated Marxist perspective is an adolescent, you know. Right. <laughs> Calling everyone utopian and so on. Yeah, utopian or, yeah, infantile or, you know, yeah, all these wonderful yeah. words. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get back to the backstabbing, but first I'm going to be obnoxious and, like, briefly, like, answer my own question that I just asked you um, because I think that it's it's interesting because if when you think about the left over time in North America um, and I mean I'm not as old as you are um, but I you know I've been sort of like involved and and plugged into to uh, the left such as it is um, for for you know 15 years or so um, what I have seen is that the left has like actually like massively grown in popularity um, over that time um, in terms of how many people would consider themselves to be sort of like on the left in some in some way, while at the same time, the um, the use of class as an analytic has almost completely disappeared yeah. from the entire left. And the main project of the left, which has always been for a century, um, to build a post-capitalist economy, um, has also disappeared completely as a goal. Um, and so what's actually happened is that the left has like grown massively while being hollowed out at the same time from within mm. to the point where it is like this weird, shallow simulation of itself that does not actually have the characteristics that defined the left previously. <laughs> um, I mean, I'd say that's true of a huge segment. I wouldn't say I wouldn't I wouldn't agree with your terms like completely and stuff like that because Bernie Sanders uh, is mm -hmm. is very much a class oriented uh, leftist with a lot of following here, and uh, you know that's um, you know I'd I'd say that's probably true of of uh, various NDP uh, politicians in Canada as well. I mean, there's a class orientation that is alive and well, um, <clears throat> but it is so much uh, sort of being subsumed or, or sucked into the quicksand by the uh, sort of what we whatever we call this phenomenon extreme identitarianism or cancel culture or whatever and i'm distinctly under the impression that uh there are forces uh in i mean not to say i'm distinctly under the impression is is inaccurate i know that there are actors involved from intelligence agencies all over the world that are deeply involved in these divide and conquer tactics and in uh in in promoting uh this kind of extreme identitarianism it is part of the program of yeah, no doubt. any intelligence agency's worth its salt to divide and conquer societies like the united states and make sure that we're all fighting with each other that is in the interest of a lot of different um, people around the world, including lots of corporate actors within the United States, and, and of course, you know, right-wing politicians, and et cetera. I mean, in a, in, a, in a society that is in so many ways a failed state, there's so many ways to try to have, a, 
the allegiance of a significant part of the population and to, to do your bidding and to make divide and rule work in your favor. It's a very risky business, but it's the business of our elite and has been for a long time. They gave up on the idea of the sort of, uh, you know, social contract uh, a long time ago. So for sure. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with you. I, I took that too far. Like there's there's definitely segments of the left that are still that are still in, interested in, in, in class as an analytic and also in post-capitalism um, of one form or another. But yeah, I mean, it is true. I think that like you can, you can be involved in, I guess you could call it the sort of cultural left, you know, um, which yep. is like, uh, you know, these like social media zones, these like political mm -hmm. bubbles and so on mm -hmm. that you can it's be involved in for like, for like years and years and, and basically never see yeah. like an economic never argument. <laughs> yeah. Um, totally. Yeah. Totally. But to get back to cancel that, culture. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I think that's about algorithms as well. Why is that aspect of the left what we are so see, so much seeing? I mean, it, it's it's it, 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 I think it's it's strategic on on the part of intelligence agencies. It's it's also a lot of confusion on the part of all sorts of confused people. It's it's very strategic on the part of the liberal media, which is a phenomenon. Uh, it wasn't so much a phenomenon when I was young, when when it was a popular term. But the phenomenon is very much since Reagan deregulated the media here. Uh, it is that there is now a liberal media and a conservative media, uh, and of course lots of other. But the the liberal media, which is very much uh, completely supportive of the Democratic National Committee, and and thinks anybody to the left of the DNC or to the right of the DNC is uh, you know is either a, you know a rabid socialist or a rabid fascist or whatever else you know, and only their their sort of middle of the road uh, you know DNC leadership position is 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 the way. Uh, to look at everything, but they are very much promoting this class doesn't exist uh, whole thing. I mean, this this whole this whole orientation is so strategic on the part of national public radio and and uh, PBS and CNN, and it is so easily evidenced by you know their 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 coverage uh, for for years now, for many many well for decades now. They they just systematically ignore labor history. But they have a they have a special you know constant emphasis on the history of racism, and uh, and and never talking about multiracial uprisings of the working mm -hmm. class, which yeah. are this solidarity of any history, kind. <laughs> any kind yeah. of solidarity, but only yeah. the lynchings. You know, we now know all about the Greenwood massacre in, in Tulsa, the pogrom that where three hundred black people were killed and 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 the whole neighborhood destroyed. And how horrific that was it can't possibly be overstated. And everybody should know about that pogrom, of course. But everybody should also know that three months prior to that in West Virginia, 15,000 Union miners, 2,000 of them black, laid siege to the town of Mingo in the biggest armed uprising in the history of the United States. That was three months before the massacre. Who's heard about that? Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, that's yeah. very strategic. Yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. Um, cancel culture denialism. Is rampant, um, and you you've mentioned cancel culture. I think a lot of people, um, you know, people put it in like quotes. Uh, yeah, they, people always put cancel culture in quotes. Yeah, and I understand, always. I understand why some people do that, but uh, it's it's really fucking annoying because basically it's, it's so annoying. It's, it's imagining that cancel culture doesn't exist. You know, people also use the mention of cancel culture as as evidence that you are indeed a bad guy. Like if you mention yeah. cancel culture, you know. Yeah, um, that's that's evidence that you're guilt uh, guilty. And of course the people who, who don't who put cancel culture in quotes are exactly the people who are engaging in they're the always literally canceling you like <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you are the cancel culture and you're putting it in quotes. How funny is that? Yeah, totally. People have complained that they're being canceled. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. 
Yeah. So we know that you have experienced intense harassment um, as a result of, uh, you know, being affiliated with various people or even like songs that you've written. Um, yeah. What is it? What has it been like for you to be canceled? How has it impacted you? What What does it feel like? What's it been like for your life? We want to know. It's um, I mean, like. I, I guess I guess I would say it, it depends on the phase of the phenomenon here that we're talking about. Um, because it's been something I've been dealing with uh, now for 20 years. And um, it started with the Anti-Deutsch in Germany, which is a group, the Anti-Deutsch, the Anti-Germans. It's a group that um, it's really hard to summarize them. They're like hardcore Zionists, right? Like, yeah, uh, but on the left. But they're on the left, yeah, which is hard to, I mean, right there, so contradictory that you know, a lot of explanation is necessary yeah, to make it's, any it's sense. Weird in, it's weird in North America because it tends to be almost the exact opposite here, but I hear that that's a big thing in, uh, in Germany and some other places in Europe. It is, and it's also growing here as well in the United States in, in a certain sort of very youthful, very ignorant sector of the left, um, you know, where it's possible to equate, uh, you know, this sort of... Uh, you know, these people who are looking for anti-Semitism under every rock. And, and of course, it, if you're looking for something, you'll find it. You know, it's not hard to find if you're if you're looking that hard for it. But, um, you know, they th- these people who then, you know, will, you know, will make the, well, basically, in the case of the anti-Deutsch, if you are have any criticisms of Israeli uh, policies, then you're, uh, you know, you're an anti-Semite. You know, that's, so for them, it's a very simple kind of equation, but... Not that they go around attacking everybody who's uh, who's critical of Israel, but anybody who's in a, you know, who's, who's in any kind of position, getting an audience, or or you know, literally getting an audience, like trying to do gigs, um, you know, then uh, they'll. So they started uh, picketing my shows and um, and threatening venues, uh, getting shows canceled um, because they said they were going to destroy the venue, and you know, all this kind of stuff was going on in the early part of the the 2000s um but i i mean social media it was didn't exist and so i mean they're they're um it was it was much more in a little corner of the left that 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 was it was significant in germany and it meant that i had to i decided to stop playing um for basically anarchist-run venues for years in Germany, uh, just to avoid the hassle, which is a strange thing for an anarchist-oriented <laughs> performer to do. But I love playing for communists. They don't give a shit about this. Uh, these stupid, uh, obviously ridiculous accusations, and 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 generally the communists don't uh, have a have a you know a rabidly pro-Israel perspective. They're much more nuanced about these things. Uh, and um, so, uh, you know, that and, and then, of course, the labor unions and the, and the anti-nuke movement. And there's loads of other places in German society I could play, but I didn't play for the anarchists for a long time. Uh, and, that, you know, they might come to my shows somewhere else, you know, but then it wouldn't be a, a sort of a, a, a venue where they'd have much sway, you know, right. to get, you know, get things canceled. But when it all started up uh, just over a year ago, again, in a big way, um, it was... Uh, you know, here based in, in, I guess, in the United States, although it's all mostly on the internet, so it's hard mm-hmm. to say, but clearly one of these people, and there may not be more than a handful, but one of them lived in Portland anyway. But, um, I mean, generally it's, it's um, 
it's devastating because of the impact that they can have with social media. I mean, it was a lot less devastating before when, you know, right. nobody you heard so of the anti-Deutsch. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, one person with a with a hundred Twitter followers tagging you strategically and, you know, following your Twitter account and, and uh, messaging anybody who uh, retweets something that you uh, tweeted or, you know, messaging anybody who's involved with a demo that you're going to be playing at which you obviously are promoting because that's what musicians yeah. do. Yeah. You know, they, <laughs> you know, you're, you're, you're going to, you know, you got to just deal with this constant, constant, uh, you know, but I mean, you know, you can also say, well, that's, that's to be expected as a, as a, if you're having an impact and, and that's what anybody will tell you, you know, when, when you complain about these people who are trying to ruin your life that you know, they'll say, well, it's a sign that you're you're uh, having an impact or that you're effective. And you know, I don't, I, that may or may not be true because it's not like necessarily happening to everybody. But, um, you know, it's it's definitely um, they they can have a real impact, you know, mm -hmm. uh, even if they are even if there's only a tiny number of them, you know, and they, they can they can because the, the whole culture and this was true. To, to this this is and was true in in the anarchist scene in Germany that there's this um even though probably most people in that scene don't agree with the anti deutsches perspective they're very uh intimidated by it because the worst yeah. thing absolutely worst thing any german could be accused of is anti-semitism so you know they picked that one you know as the as the you know and it, well, like who's they in in the case of the involvement of the intelligence agencies in disrupting the left, which is what they do all the time all over the world, and they've been doing it for a very long time, and anybody who doesn't agree with that is either uneducated or an intelligent agent themselves. Um, you know, the, in, from the perspective of the intelligence agencies, I think they pick anti-Semitism as the thing in Germany, you know, because it's the most successful way to divide the left there. You know, whereas here um, they they were more focusing on other things like race and gender and uh, transsexuality and 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 then now they're finding anti-Semitism to be a useful tool as well to to divide and conquer with um, as well. My my favorite thing about that whole um, scenario is that it's a, a bunch of like German hooligans threatening a Jew. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Um, I know you that's that you're the not part... allowed to have an audience or say what you believe. Um, my, my favorite part about that, but yeah, but I, uh, my understanding is that things have gotten like quite a lot more severe for you um, over time. Because I mean, I guess back in the day there was like some some like weirdos in Germany pick, picketing your shows and stuff like that. Um, but then I hear there was like flyers put up about you, accusing you of all sorts of like really like disgusting um, things. And uh, more recently, I guess it's been like, yeah, just taken online in a really big way where like you have like all this like really intense like online pushback. Is that accurate? Yeah, but it's it's been overwhelmingly, um, you know, a, a handful of people with very few followers who are um, who are denouncing me all the time. Uh, one of whom clearly dedicates all his waking hours to uh, mm -hmm. trying to ruin my career. Oh, we got one of those too. Yeah, <laughs> I'll bet you do. But there's uh, there's no um, there's there's very I mean if I guess there might be one person with a recognizable name 
<clears throat> in the anti-fascist scene who, who who seems to be willing to to publicly uh, criticize me, or at least he wrote a tweet that about how he was not going to have anything to do with me at this point uh, anymore. Not that we had anything to do with each other before, you know, but other than that, <laughs> you know, we knew of each other's work, you know, basically. But uh, you know, but otherwise, I think you know most people when they look into it, if they if they have a name that they want to be associated with you know that they're writing books or whatever it is they're doing um you know once they look into it then they they don't want to be associated with any campaign against me because they can see it's ridiculous but uh of course they, they have to look into it though they, yeah. they, they they have to look into and if they don't look into it and i've been this you know you know i've been in the position as i'm sure you guys have as so pretty much everybody has whether i mean i've Ten year, nine years ago, I was I had a gig with Gilad Atzman, with this jazz musician in England, who uh, uh, many people love to hate, and um, and I was told to not do the gig because he's an anti-Semite, and and he and the proof that his anti-Semitism, the main proof was this book that he wrote. So I uh, I read the book and because I you know I was asked to to cancel the gig and join this denunciatory campaign against him, you know based on uh, a few out of context quotes that these people were sharing around with everybody, and uh, the out of context quotes looked disturbing, um, but uh, but I still didn't feel comfortable denouncing the guy just based on these quotes just because they were being shared by a guy I kind of knew who had been to some of my shows before and I thought of was a good guy, you know? So that would have all been reason to maybe just agree with this and per, this flyer and this person and join this campaign and cancel the gig. But I read the book and the book was a nuanced piece of thinking about Jewish identity and history. And there was a lot of stuff in there that one might be disturbed by or, or find sketchy or disagreeable but i didn't find any kind of like smoking gun of anti-semitism by any means i just found a, a a disturbing and interesting exploration of jewish history and identity which is all stuff that i've been thinking about ever since i grew up among jews in new york you know so uh you know but uh this is um th this yeah, I mean, th th at that point, it became at, th at that point, Facebook and Twitter were around and, and that kind of campaign uh, seemed to be um, so much easier to launch and, and have a really big impact. And, and I think it, it's had a very destructive impact on his career, although, you know, he might, you know, I, th the, I mean, of course, one of the things about people who, who have these campaigns against them is they may or may not want to admit, you know, just how bad the you know how destructive it is you know because depending on how they did things and how who they were i mean if you're if you're somebody who's do, you know mean you're mean you're playing really independent venues and, and you're largely surviving through patreon you know that kind of thing is probably un, less likely to have a big impact you know but if you were getting lots of gigs in mainstream venues or or if you were employed by an institution like a university you know as you know uh, probably quite a bit better than me doing this podcast it, it can be devastating and in ruin lives and yeah. does every day totally yeah there's a couple things that i wanted to like pull out of what you said like very often um the actual instigators of these cancel campaigns the people who are like really dedicated um i mean first of all there's like a total lack of, a, of accountability on their part because very often they can be anonymous um or very vague about who they are um or like where they're getting their information 
Um, but whether or not they're anonymous, there's often like a few people who are like really set on canceling someone, but they can suck a lot of people into it because those people yeah. are basically doing so under duress because like they are afraid of also being canceled themselves. And the way that cancel culture works is that if, like you said, if you're in any way associated with someone, whether that's like you had a conversation with them once, you followed them on social media, you or, failed to denounce them, like whatever, yep. then you also become just as bad as them and you come to represent everything that they're being accused of, whether or not what they're being accused of is even true in the first place. Um, yep. And so having that that sort of principled, um, nuanced stance where you're like, okay, these people are saying this thing about this guy. I actually want to like look into it before I co-sign like a very major accusation against someone. I want to like check and see if it makes sense what they're saying. And then coming to your own conclusions where you're like, you know, I have my thoughts about this book or whatever, but I don't actually agree with the interpretation that you guys are, are making here. So I'm not going to take part in like um, trying to take down another human being, you know? Yeah. Um, I think that's a very common um, trajectory um, with cancel culture. And a lot of where it gets its fuel is that like so many of the people who are taking part, they don't even know what they're taking part in. Like they haven't actually looked into it. They don't actually know. Um, they're just repeating what they've heard. And they often do so with like an incredible amount of authority when they don't actually know what they're talking about and like I totally understand because people say the most bizarre and insane things about me um including saying that I'm somehow involved with a American sex trafficking cult um when I'm a Canadian and I actually hadn't heard of this cult until I heard that I was apparently a member of it um but people just repeat these things with absolutely no evidence or whatever just because you know I'm an easy target you know we're easy targets because we talk about controversial things um but yeah all that to lead into my next question which is about misrepresentation so like misrepresentation is actually like a really core piece of the experience of being canceled. And I'm sure you mm. can relate to this. Yeah. You know, for me, I'm a writer and like I spent my whole life carefully writing out what I think about things, right? <laughs> like that's literally my job. And if you want to know what I think about things, I've said so many times, like you can, you can find it in many places. And yet people say that I think all of these things and that I believe all of these things that are totally out of alignment with what I actually do believe. Um, and that actually my, my writing, um, the things I say and my behavior, none of those things support these accusations against me. Right. Um, mm. and so it's very annoying to have people just say the, these things about me that are like a profound misrepresentation of who I am as a person. And I think, you know, with, with the cancellation against you, it's also very, um, bizarre that a person who is an open and outspoken anti-fascist and who has literally said that many times is now being accused of being a fascist. Um, and again, the amount of times that I have seen cancellations against Jewish people where they're being called anti-Semites yeah. is actually like weirdly common. Um, weirdly common. It's really, like, really, really, yeah. it's, it seems to be most of the left-wingers who get accused of, of anti-Semitism are, are Jews, at least in England. In England, it's been the case. Yeah, and it's pretty, it's pretty disturbing for lots of reasons. Um, but yeah, we just wanted to ask you about the experience of being misrepresented. Um, and what that's like, um, and also, you know, what your thoughts are about the phenomenon of, of cancel culture and misrepresentation. It's, it's so disturbing for people, including for me, you know, because of course you, 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 you well, I mean, in the case of like, you know, as a writer, you've, you've expressed your thoughts in so many ways. As a musician, I've recorded dozens of albums that, you know, so many of the songs are explicitly anti-fascist in orientation. 
and you know that that the 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 body of work speaks for itself but of course in the age of twitter that's not how it works and if mm -hmm. you have ever said something that wasn't well explained and can be boiled down into a tweet length thing that makes you look like you uh, believe something differently than what you do uh, which in my case has involved actual total misquotes like actually taking a word like uh uh disproportionate and changing it to more Right. <laughs> These are not the same words. And, and you know, if you put, if you put the word "more" in a sentence where "disproportionate" was the word that was used, you know, you, you okay? It's that's not an innocent mistake. It completely changes the meaning of the sentence. Right. You know, so um, you know that's just that kind of thing. You know that that they'll do uh, sometimes. Um, and it's unclear to me whether it's intentional or unintentional that they changed the word, and you know, were they just being sloppy? I mean, you know, I don't know. But, uh, you know, this is, uh, it's, it's so devastating uh, because of, you know, as you say, because of all the people who are going to just jump on board and be like, oh, yeah, that guy, I've heard of him. Oh, he's a fascist. Yeah, he's a fascist. You know, you know it, it's not like that guy, I've heard of him. Maybe I'll get around to actually listening to it, one of his songs. Right. I, because, you know, most of the time, if, if anybody does ever get around to listening to one of my songs, they've already heard my name you know, a lot of times before they ever bother, like, oh, well, I wonder what he sounds like or or the other way they've heard a song and they didn't know it was me. But they're ready to denounce me as a fascist before they get around to listening to a song. You know, it seems, right. you know, it's, um, you know, based on somebody's, uh, you know, quote or misquote. And it's uh, it, it's it's a disturbing uh, tendency, but it's also like uh it's also one that the internet and 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 you know social media algorithms you know massively um, foster along with puritanical culture and i think that that's that's also um i mean i think there's i'm not sure because i i only really am deeply familiar with a a, a handful of of countries uh in in terms of really being able to say i i know this society you know and and there's there's 200 countries in the world and I, I could say i'm really familiar with eight or nine of them you know maybe a dozen but but from my experience uh, and 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 half of them are are former english colonies right so it's a very it's a very warped perspective on the world but my my but it seems like it's the united states and germany but especially the united states that um has this kind of uh, cancel culture so much more than any other country and and to the extent that it's a German phenomenon, it's limited to the question of anti-Semitism, and it's specific to their history of the Holocaust. But but in the United States, it could be about anything, and it's mm -hmm. and it, and I think it really uh, has a lot to do with the puritanical heritage, uh, the moralistic um, you know heritage, which which is really like um, I I didn't I, I you know I, I didn't really realize just how deep that that whole thing goes uh, until I started. Spending time outside of the U.S., you know, particularly mm -hmm. in even just, I mean, Australia, you know, and England. I mean, they're both Anglo countries with so many similarities uh, to to the U.S., but but without that uh, puritanical influence, um, it, it, to nearly the same extent. Interesting. You know? Yeah, it strikes me too that like there's there's I mean it's related to puritanism. There's this like fundamentalist orientation that I don't think is unique to the US at all, but like there's there's a fundamentalist orientation that you can find in religions, you can also find in like political movements, totalitarian movements and so on. And I think that it's very present in what we call the nexus. And something that is characteristic of fundamentalism 
is this ability to be like, it is morally acceptable for me to do uh, morally unacceptable things um, in the service of, you know, the, the, the greater cause or whatever, right? And I think that that is a major reason why people are like, oh, I'm just literally going to like change this quote, you know, to completely like discredit this guy. Um, even yeah. though that's clearly like a dishonest and like sort of like um, dishonorable thing to do because it's in the service of something that I consider to be uh, more important, you know, which is right. fighting anti-Semitism. And I believe that this guy is an anti-Semite and therefore I'm going to make it seem though as though he, he is, is an anti-Semite right. um, so that other people can also believe that he's an anti-Semite and we can all believe the same thing together, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that um, makes good sense. I mean, in a twisted way, but I think you're right. <laughs> I think that's pretty much what it is, you know? I mean, also, honestly, it reminds me of like Stalinist, like show trials and like the, the kinds of ways that different like, t- t- totalitarian governments and like fundamentalist religion, religious groups have behaved around the world too, you know? Just doing Absolutely. things like, you know, um, you know how, how do you justify to yourself creating like, let's say like propaganda uh, films that are completely at odds with reality um, lying to people on purpose unless you believe on some level that it's for a greater purpose you know what I mean like that's that's why you do that it's, it's a fundamentalist outlook you know um, yeah yeah okay so here's a here's a softball question for you um, but we are yeah because we are on the fucking cancel podcast we have to ask it uh, <laughs> why is cancel culture bad for the left um, and why is it important to talk about it yeah because uh, the most important thing that the workers of the world need to do is to unite and um you know this is uh this is a uh, really obvious to anybody that's been involved with uh you know class uh, politics for most of the history of the existence of the working class you know ever since uh you know the, ever since the, the the governments of many different countries started driving the peasantry out off of the land and into the cities in order to populate the factories and starting up uh, schools to warehouse the children while their parents are in the factories and police forces to uh, police the workers uh, who go on strike from the factories. You know, ever since this whole thing uh, that we call modern society got set up, uh, there's been a, a class war very obviously being waged against the working class um, by the ruling class. And the working class uh, as a class, uh, to a large extent, figured out a long time ago that they needed to resist this stuff and they needed to unite in solidarity with each other against this, uh, this uh, problem of the plutocrats running everything and uh, you know, causing so much misery and, and, and death. And um, that's our purpose uh, in this world. Anybody who cares about their fellow humans uh, or life on earth, uh, you need to be in solidarity with the working class and you need to be working towards the overthrow of capitalism, which is destroying humanity and life on earth. And that's a statement of the obvious to me. And uh, but it's also a statement of the obvious to the ruling class and the ruling class uh, realizes that the workers united is a problem. And so they want to make sure we're divided. And they've been doing that forever. And uh, that's what slavery was about to a large extent. Uh, You know, that's what uh, national borders are often about. That's what uh, imperial wars are about because colonialism is about. There's a lot of uh, different um, expressions of of this divide and conquer uh, 
orientation and of course it makes them lots of money too uh, you know d dividing and conquering the working class as well as dividing the working class in preventing uh, revolution and sol solidarity it also causes them to make even more profits than they would if we were less divided and they had to give us more crumbs right but uh so cancel culture um plays right into all of the things that the ruling class uh wants us to be doing which is uh, which is attacking each other you know and not viewing each other as a class but uh, we are a class and we live in a world that is a class divided world run run by capitalism and uh we are the 99% whether we know it or not and you know and and, and maybe it's the 83% or whatever but you know, in this society, in the United States, 17% of the country makes more than six figures. That's the rest of society, 83% that makes less than six figures, you know, mm -hmm. and, and making less than six figures in a lot of parts of this country means you are struggling to feed your family and keep them housed in a decent housing and to send them to university and that kind of stuff. It is a struggle. You know, and, and of course, if you make a lot less than six figures, forget about it. It's not a struggle. It's not even a question. You know, my my kids aren't going to university in this country, man. They're, they're, they're going to university somewhere else where they can go for free. And luckily, they have citizenship in other countries because of their mothers. Um, but, you know, so that's a realistic thing. But, I mean, the idea of sending them to school in this country, you know, Jesus, forget it. I can't afford an extra hundred bucks for somebody to go to school after I get done paying the rent, you know. And that's true for so many other people and mm -hmm. but yeah people don't see themselves um many people don't see themselves that way and, and you know divide and conquer has been very successful in so many ways you know internationally as well as within national borders you know, even to the extent where you know members uh, you know people who are members of the working class in in wealthy countries uh don't even view themselves as being part of the working class because they're not starving or something mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So um, what changes would you like to see on the left? Um, from where we are, where do we need to go? What do we need to do to improve the situation? I mean, I think the first thing we need to do is is be in solidarity with each other and, and, and to, to systematically constantly look at what we have in common and, and how we can build on that uh, rather than, uh, you know, putting each other through purity tests or, or you know, uh, checking out who people are before you associate uh, with them. I mean, you know, of course, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to invite somebody to do security at your, uh, you know, at your function who you, who you just met off the street that night. I mean, there, there's, that's, you know, it's not that we should just, uh, it should just be a free for all where everybody can do anything. Uh, but, but we need to have an ecumenical, uh, you know, inclusive orientation fundamentally rather than an exclusive cliqueish one. And, and we need to build uh, institutions of all kinds that uh, will somehow um, last and, and uh, perpetuate themselves. Not that that's an easy thing to do. I mean, it's not a, that's not a pr pr it's not a you know, it's not a step by step uh, piece of uh, advice I'm offering. But I think those are the directions we def desperately need to go in. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that we can we can build up like a theoretical orientation that is that is like um, very focused on um, constantly, like you said, constantly and systematically looking at what we have in common, right? And then um, denying and rejecting uh, the the process of finger pointing, backstabbing, and canceling that has become so common, and just be like, we we don't actually participate in this, mm -hmm. like because we're leftists, so we don't participate. 
you know? And I think that like building that up and making that a normalized position yeah. on the left, mm-hmm. it needs to be uh, primary, honestly, because like yeah. literally nothing else that anyone else is doing or can do um, will ever last. Because as you were pointing out, like the, the, the coverage of the left, especially in North America, right? is just so shallow, has no roots and cannot last longer than like a couple of years. Um, I'm, I'm exaggerating, you know, or mm-hmm. I'm, I'm speaking in broad strokes, but I think that's like a, it's like a major, major yeah. problem. Um, because yeah. because of those issues you know totally it's like yeah i um you know the number one political issue that i care about is climate change because i'm like you know that's nothing else matters if we don't right. have a planet to live on yeah and i would love to be spending my time doing meaningful political work on that issue but unfortunately you know every single you know group that tries to organize on that issue is imploded from the inside due to like various cancel campaigns so it's yep. very annoying because I'm like, I actually don't want to be talking about cancel culture. It's literally very annoying and I don't care to be talking about it. But it's just that I feel like it's the most important political work that I can do right now because I want other political actors, I want activists to be able to do their work without getting exploded from the inside um, and so that they can actually be effective so that maybe we might be able to save the planet. Yeah, like, you know, yep. Extinction Rebellion for all of its problems that, that it had, you know, have you noticed that it just completely fucking disappeared? Mm, I mean, it's still it's still a big deal in the UK, and which is I think where it started. So I don't, oh, yeah. I don't know. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. It's gone here. <laughs> uh-huh, right, right. It's been exploded here. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and and especially I think it was in Toronto, right? There was like huge sort of cancel campaigns yeah. that just like decapitated it. Classic. Um, yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's so been... um, sorry, sorry. Uh, yeah, we're just no, we're, just... we're, <laughs> we're going to wrap up the interview uh, shortly. Um, uh huh. You want to just let people know kind of where they can find your work, uh, if you have any writing, or if you have a social media presence, whatever, where they can find any of that? Oh, sure. I, I write essays regularly for Counterpunch. So that's one place people can look for me. But basically, if you can spell my name, you can find me on all the different platforms. DavidRovix.com, <laughs> but I'm on Spotify and YouTube and all that. Okay. Um, awesome. I have we'll... a podcast called This Week with David Rovix, Amazing. Which, is, which is a random collection of interviews rants and concerts basically cool so we're gonna put all of that in the show notes for sure um and we're very happy to announce to our listeners that david rovix has agreed to play a couple of songs for us so uh absolutely we're gonna we're gonna hand it over to david rovix um for the next couple of minutes i'm gonna find these lyrics let's see i have a particular song in mind just for your show amazing <laughs> We're very excited because you're our first uh, you're our first musical guest. <laughs> oh, excellent. Oh, what is that? Def- definitely your first guest with a mandola. It's a mandola. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> I don't drive a car because they run on gas. But if I did, it'd run on biomass. I ride a bike or sometimes a skateboard. So fuck off all you drivers and your yuppie hordes sitting all day in the traffic queues. I'm a better anarchist than you. I don't eat meat. 
I just live on moldy chives or the donuts that I found in last week's dumpster dives. Look, you people in that restaurant, I think you are so sad when you could have been eating bagels like the ones that I just had. I think it is a shame all the bourgeois things you do. I'm a better anarchist than you. I don't wear leather and I like my clothes in black and I made a really cool hammock from a moldy coffee sack. I like to hop on freight trains. I think that is so cool. It's so much funner doing this than being stuck in school. I can't believe you're wearing those brand new shiny shoes. I'm a better anarchist than you. I don't have sex. And there will be no sequel because heterosexual relationships are inherently unequal. I'll just keep on moshing to anti-flag and crass until there are no differences in gender, race, or class. All you brainwashed breeders, you just haven't got a clue. I'm a better anarchist than you. I don't believe in leaders. I think consensus is the key. I don't believe in stupid motions like representative democracy. Whether or not it works, I know it is the case that only direct action can save the human race. So when I see you in your voting booth, then I know it's true. I'm a better anarchist than you. I am not a pacifist, I like throwing bricks, and when the cops have caught me and I've taken a few licks, I always feel lucky if I get a bloody nose, because I feel so militant and everybody knows. By the time the riot is all through, I'm a better anarchist than you. I'm a better anarchist than you. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> uh, I feel like you're channeling my uh, 19 year old self. <laughs> oh, and let's do a climate change related one. Oh, you got another one? Great. Awesome. Oh, yeah. It's also related to cancel culture, sort of the ecumenical idea. Beautiful. We, we could dissect this song. keeps mounting each time I turn on my phone another mass shooting another free fire zone I'm gonna start that again just in case you might actually you know play the song more than once or something I don't want to fuck up on the beginning twice in a row. <laughs> okay the death toll keeps mounting each time I turn on my phone, another mass shooting, another free fire zone. The failed states of America, white supremacist rule, a society riven with victims and tools. The fires keep burning, completely out of control. Makes you miss the old days of the ozone hole. The snow is all melting. The lakes of Greenland. The best hope that I have, I hold in my hand. If there's a tomorrow, then when yesterday's through, you have me. 
and I have you. We might have to leave town, or maybe we'll fall beneath a hail of bullets at the shopping mall. Perhaps we'll be arrested. Perhaps they'll pass us by. But wherever we might be, when we look up at the sky, if there's a tomorrow, then when yesterday's through, you have me, and I have you. by humankind we'd like it to be different but this is the place we find the one we inherit the one we're in now whatever might come of the future why when how if there's a tomorrow then when yesterday's through you have me, and I have you. If there's a tomorrow, then when yesterday's through, you have me, and I have you. I have you. They get very emotional from I do. <laughs> from I, music. I cry easily. Good. Good. Um, good. That should be. You're uh, you're a very pure soul. Yeah. Your music Thank is you, beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. We really appreciate having you on the pod, man. Um, it's really nice to talk to you on a personal level too. We listen to your music a lot over the years. Great talking yeah. to you both. Yeah, yeah, let's do it again soon. Yeah, Drop so, by if you're in the neighborhood. I, I make the best espresso on the block. Got the cutest kid. I think she might be wandering in here shortly. Hey, Koto. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Same to you, man. If you're ever in Montreal, look us up. Totally. Thanks so much for coming. Will do. Pod. Thank you. Take care. Oh.